0: I'm Betsy Kaplan here with Kyone Wolf asking uh, during your podcast. I'm not sure what time you're listening to this, (laughs) but we're glad you tune in. We're glad you tune in, I hope, every day, but whenever you can. So give us a call. But you have to support the show. We can't do it without your support. 1-800-584-2788 online at WNPR.org.
2: And just like you made the great decision to listen to this podcast, please continue to make great decisions by being a member or renewing your membership. If you don't remember the last time you renewed your membership, then it's probably time to renew it.
0: That's a problem.
2: <laughs> that's a problem. But you're going to solve it because you're a public radio listener and that's what you do. So call 1-800-584-2788 or go to WNPR.org slash donate. And, and thank you. Enjoy the podcast.
3: Oh, that is so beautiful. That's Nadine Sierra singing. You're going to hear her uh, in conversation with me uh, towards the end of the show about opera. Uh, That's my favorite cut from her new uh, release, um, which you're just going to want to get, I think. But uh, okay, so as I was thinking about today's show, which is about opera, it's really kind of about the future uh, of opera, but also the things that have caused opera companies to even uh, falter or die. um, I was thinking... (laughs) this morning I thought, you know what we should talk about? We should talk about that uh, that Nicole Muley opera about Amy Fisher and Joey Buttafuoco. And then I thought about it a little bit more and I realized that opera doesn't actually exist. I just have it in my head because it was a subplot in the Amazon series uh, Mozart in the Jungle. Uh, and, and they had Nicole Muley, who is kind of a bad boy opera composer in real life. And they just, in this series, they had people from the world of music play themselves frequently. And so they posited this notion that he was working uh, on uh, on an opera about Amy Fisher and Joey Buttafuoco, whom you would know if you were a certain age, anyway. Uh, not your maybe not your typical opera story, except that I did a little research about this. And the writers of the show they wanted to have that be a subplot. And I should say that they even Nico even wrote a uh, an aria uh, for Amy Fisher, which was sung by the soprano Ana Maria Martinez and. Uh, The the writers for the show were trying to come up with an idea like that one. And they kept coming up with ideas like Patty Hearst and and Gene Harris, who shot the uh, Scarsdale Diet doctor. And then they do a little bit of research and it would turn out either there was an opera or there was almost an opera. There's an opera in development in the pipeline. Like all these things, uh, all these kind of ripped from today's headlines stories were were being developed by the world of opera. Broadly construed, not necessarily for a 3000 seat theater uh, or a vast huge cast, or an enormous orchestra. Which brings us uh, to uh, our main guest today, Heidi Waleson. Uh, her new book is Mad Scenes and Exit Arias, uh, The Death of the New York City Opera and the Future of Opera in America. Uh, Heidi Wilson writes about uh, opera for the Wall Street Journal and other places as well, uh, and is a faculty member of the Rubin Institute for Music Criticism at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. And most importantly, she spent uh, some of her young life from 1972 and 1976, uh, spending her days and nights at Davenport College in Yale, which was where I first met her. So um, great to be back in touch with you, Heidi Wilson.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: So, you know, this is a a fascinating study, a history of the New York City Opera and, and kind of what happened to it. And we'll get into that. But I sort of hate beginning our conversation Uh, on a note of what the structural problems were with this opera company. And we can come to that. But I feel like just in order to engage the audience, maybe we should talk about something that the New York City Opera tried, um, which is something that's kind of typical and and actually was pretty successful with, something that's pretty typical of some of the more elastic, nimble, opportunistic things that opera companies have to try these days. And the one that I have in mind from your book is um, an opera based uh, on the same story that was the movie Dead Man Walking, the story uh, of uh, a man in death row, the character played by Sean Penn, and then Sister Helen Prejean, I think is how you say her name, uh, the the nun played by Susan Sarandon. So that's an example, Heidi, of of maybe something people wouldn't ordinarily associate with an opera. And some interesting um, ideas were applied to this concept. Maybe you can tell a little bit of that story from the book.
4: Well, the the really interesting thing about *Dead Man Walking* was that it was it was kind of the first contemporary opera um, in like the last couple of decades to really catch on. Um, it was premiered at the um, at the San Francisco Opera. Um, it was the first opera by. Jake Heggie and uh, I guess it it was Terrence McNally was librettist, right? I think that's right. And it just, because it was so timely and people were so, because it's about capital punishment. I mean, it's about this, you know, man who is, you know, who's on death row and this nun who is really working very hard to find forgiveness in her own heart for him and to, you know, try and understand why somebody would do something like this. And she's, of course, you know, completely anti-capital punishment. So it was at the time that it was done at the San Francisco Opera, it was, you know, particularly big in the, um, you know, in the political world, people were talking about the issue a lot. And Sister Helen became, you know, a a huge um, booster of this opera. And so every time anybody did it, which was you know, quite a few times um, all over the country. And even since then, it's become one of the most performed modern operas um, in recent history. Um, Helen, Sister Helen would be invited to come and there would be, um, you know, there would be panel discussions and lectures and people would, you know, come in and they would talk about capital punishment. So opera kind of became this, um, you know, galvanizing point to have, you know, a discussion about an issue that was really very, very present in, um, you know, in the general conversation.
3: Um, We we should say that um, this was also an opera was, which I think didn't six opera companies kind of participate. Yeah. Explain that, how that worked.
4: Well, um the the way opera opera's very expensive to produce and you know, creating a new production for an opera um, is a you know, is a cost Intensive thing. So if you have a bunch of opera companies who all decide they want to put on this particular opera, they can band together and create a production that will then travel around. So you can do it in New York, you can do it in Detroit, you can do it in Miami, I mean, whatever. And you just take the same sets and costumes and they travel around, often the same singers. Um, are also cast in the you know in the opera, and so you have and the same director obviously directs it. So you have a certain efficiency, um, and you also which is really particularly great for contemporary operas. You get um, you get legs for a piece because often these new operas are done. They're done once by the company that commissions them, and they're never heard from again. So the thing about Dead Man Walking was because it was so timely. There were a lot of opera companies that said, "Yes, we can do something with this." So they co-commissioned this production that went around, and there have been several subsequent ones as well.
3: Right. It just—I think you mentioned in the book—it just keep, keeps getting produced uh, yep. right up through 2017, at least, if not beyond that. Oh, um, beyond, definitely. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, so I wanted to begin with kind of a happy story um, because obviously the story of the New York City opera is not does not have a happy ending anyway. But so, the, you know, you hear something like that, Heidi, and it seems like, wow, well, that's a good way to be flexible and nimble and, and smart and maybe also not too expensive to deal with. So why weren't solutions like that enough to save the New York City opera? What kind of tide was it swimming against that that it couldn't be saved?
4: well there there are a couple of things, and um the the biggest ones well the two biggest ones have to do with money and audiences um, money 's um, really very important because opera is very expensive, and um, it keeps getting more expensive because the people who perform it need to be paid more, and you can 't charge um, significantly more money for the people who attend it, so your expenses get much higher, and the um, earned income that you take in tends to get a little flatter. Um, also, the you know the way that um, audience audiences are falling off for a lot of these legacy um, high culture kinds of um, things like orchestras and opera companies, uh, really accelerated a lot in the early 2000s. So you basically have institutions that are set up to perform a certain number of, um, you know, Operas a year, they pay people, they have fixed um, contracts, they have to perform, you know, like 100, do 100 performances, and they've got these fixed contracts to do 100 performances. And if um, if, if your audience is falling off and you really can only afford to fill your house for, say, 60 performances, you still have to pay your artists for 100 performances. I mean, that's, you know, that's the basic problem.
3: Yeah. So, I um, and this is so it's an exacerbation of a problem that has also faced symphony orchestras. The Hartford Symphony uh, here, not too far from where I'm sitting, has struggled with these problems as well. Some of these things are, in fact, good old fashioned union contracts. Right. Um, I, I think the, the Lyric Opera in Chicago recently, didn't they have a strike?
4: They sure did. They went on strike for five days, um, and I was happy to see that it was settled after five days. But the, you know, what the the orchestra was talking about there was was the same things. The company wanted to cut back their guaranteed weeks of work from twenty four weeks to twenty two weeks because they had cut the number of performances that they do from, you know, something like eighty to sixty five. And um, the orchestra said, no, we have this is our guarantee, and you know, you you find the people to go and attend the performances. I mean, and they did finally settle the strike, and the guarantee was went from twenty four weeks to twenty two.
3: It it seems as though one of the other things that you set up with a situation like this, where um, the costs are high, the the audience is hard to reach at times, is a situation in which, on the one hand, innovation would seem to be the way out, but on the other hand, innovation is maybe a risk that's very big to take. In other words, the the um, the temptation to lean on crowd pleasers that you know will get a certain core audience out might exceed your willingness to take a chance on something that might develop a different kind of audience?
4: Well, I mean, and definitely that was the way opera companies um, have dealt with it for a very long time. I mean, they saw the audience falling off and they thought, oh, well, we, we better not take any risks because, you know, if we take risks, we'll lose the people we have. You know, we may get new ones, but we'll definitely lose the people we have. And They were kind of losing them anyway. Mm. And, you know, the crowd pleasers don't pull the way they, you know, the way they once did. So it seems to me that um, the companies that are really looking at innovation are the ones that are going to survive.
3: Right. So let's talk about what, let's even give people an example of what innovation sounds like. In just a second, we'll play a little clip from uh, The Revolution of Steve Jobs. Once again, this would be an example of the kind of thing, if you haven't really paid very much attention to, how opera has been changing. Really, probably since at least the mid-1980s, it might not occur to you that someone as mm, sort of newsy (laughs) as Steve Jobs would warrant an opera. But we'll play a little clip from that, and then Heidi can talk a little bit about it
1: was just taken down Mabel, was just screwed over Mabel, was Was just brought to her her.
5: money-sucking monolithic monopolistic monopolistic, autocratic knees Mabel
3: was just brought to her knees Mabel was just brought to her knees Right. So now, this is an example, Heidi, as I understand it, is an opera that uh, a, a new opera about a pretty modern topic. And it sold pretty well, at least where it started out. Right.
4: It sold like hotcakes at the Santa Fe Opera. They were they had to put on another performance. People were so interested in going to see it. I mean, they, they sold them all out as far as I know.
3: But so somehow or other, opera companies, uh, whether it's the was the New York Opera Company or, or New, uh, New York City Opera, excuse me, uh, or an opera company that's open right now, like the Met, um, the Met. By the way, I mentioned Nicole Muley at the top. I think they're opening Marnie, uh, Nicole Muley's um, opera adaptation of the Tippy Hedren Sean Connery uh, movie that was based on a novel. Uh, but right now, I think they're doing, or they just finished up, uh, Sanson and Delilah. And uh, I, I should mention that because Darko Trishnik, uh he of the Hartford Stadium company was doing, I think, his Met and maybe his opera debut. Uh, although, I, as it's I read- It's not his opera debut, but he has. Opera, yeah.
4: it was his Met debut. Yes, okay. definitely. Um,
3: you weren't crazy about it. Times really hated mm. it. Uh, mm. But it's an example, of maybe, how you have to mix up your programming, too. You can't just do Steve Jobs because it did really well somewhere, right? People expect uh, sort of new and traditional.
4: That is absolutely true. And certainly- I would say with almost all of the, you know, the big opera companies, both the big legacy opera companies um, like the Met and Chicago and San Francisco, which do, you know, like uh, 15 to 25 different operas every year. I mean, you couldn't do all new operas there. So, yeah. So this week, you know, um, we, well, we had Samson and Delisle at the Met. We had Aida at the Met. Tonight I'm going to see La Fanchula del West, which is the Puccini sort of thing about the Wild West, which is very peculiar. But that's, you know, that's notable because the great German tenor, Jonas Kaufmann, is returning to the Met for the first time in four years. So people are very excited about that. And then on Friday, we get Marnie. So yes, absolutely, um, you have to mix it up. And the biggest, of the, the biggest of the companies do tend to have the kind of riskier, um, more modern things are, are a much smaller percentage of the, um, you know, of the overall product offering for the year.
3: All right, let's uh, take a little break. We're talking right now to, to Heidi Wilson. Uh, her book is Mad Scenes and Exit Arias, the death of the New York City Opera and the future of opera in America. Uh, we'll take a break. Well, let's go out with uh, something, uh, uh, kind of a contemporary opera, a little bit from Dog Days, uh, by the composer David Little, who I think has been on our show. I feel like he was with us down at the New Haven Festival of Arts and Ideas and Pancakes. How'd you
0: do
1: I
3: Uh, joining us uh, from the Radio Foundation in Manhattan, uh, Heidi Wilson, uh, opera critic for The Wall Street Journal, faculty member of the Rubin Institute for Music Criticism at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, and the author of Mad Scenes and Exit Arias, The Death of the New York City Opera and the Future of Opera in America. I'm trying to emote that uh, as operatically as <laughs> I possibly can. Uh, joining us also, uh, I th- maybe even from the streets of Los Angeles, is Mark Skorka, president and CEO uh, of Opera America. Uh, Mark, Welcome to the conversation we're having.
1: Thank you so much. I wish we're in Los Angeles. I'm here in New York where the winds are blowing and the temperature is chilly.
3: Oh, I can hear those winds. Ooh. Uh, all right. So, um, Mark, m- maybe just begin by talking about, you know, Heidi and I have been talking a little bit about her book, but also about innovation that's going on uh, in, in opera. Uh, one of your brainchilds is this uh, uh, National Opera Center in New York. Maybe begin by just by talking a little bit about that.
1: Sure. First of all, let me just congratulate Heidi on her wonderful book. It's a great read. Um, Thank you. uh, Opera America is the industry association for opera, and we are based here in New York, and we've had a commitment for almost all of our 50 years to supporting the creation and production of new opera in order to make opera an integral part of American cultural expression. Uh, The National Opera Center here on 7th Avenue is where lots of Composers and librettists come to do readings of new works. Singers come to audition and rehearse. Um, it's an active nexus for the, for the opera industry. Um, from our point of view, we are really excited about what's going on in opera today in many ways, not necessarily always, but in many ways. The, the number of new works that are being created, the artists who want to create opera, the number of composers, librettists, directors and designers who want to make opera their platform for expression. We have lots of what we call indie, independent opera companies, that are springing up all over the country, really expanding the understanding of what opera can be, where it can be performed, and what audiences can enjoy it. It is a time of of evolution at such a pace, almost revolution, a very exciting time.
3: So, Heidi, you know, uh, I'm listening to uh, what he's talking about and, and, uh, and thinking a little bit about that center, too. Uh, in a way, Opera's greatest, one of opera's greatest assets is also, is also its worst enemy, and that is the Grand Opera House. I mean, we love these opera houses. They're beautiful, they're, they're worthy of a pilgrimage. Uh, on the other hand, they posit already a scale uh, that is going to run into a lot of the problems that you talked about in, in the first segment, right? The, the opera house is, you got to fill it with 3,000 people, you got to fill it with a certain kind of production. Is, is that, in a way, kind of a handicap? Yeah, it can be. Um and it's not 3,000, it's 4,000
4: people <laughs> if, you're, if you're talking about the Met. I mean, it's they're huge. And um there are some uh, you know, some operas that can fill those houses um and some that can't. And the, the those houses were really built for uh, sort of an aspirational um cultural um you know, idea in the in the middle of the, the century about how you know like America could be this, you know, great place where where big Big operas happened and big orchestra concerts happened. And they were really built around these 19th century pieces by Wagner and Verdi and Puccini that were about, um, you know, bigness and grandness and, you know, and all of that. And now, indeed, it is more and more difficult to fill those houses and to fill them for 250 nights a year. And um, different opera companies are looking for different solutions for how to get around that.
3: So, you know, one thing that I didn't ask at the beginning, uh, and I probably should have, but I'm going to ask it uh, now, Mark, and I'll give an example. Boy, if I had a big opera house, one thing I'd be thinking about is this show, Hamilton. Now, and that brings up the question, what is an opera, and why isn't Hamilton an opera? Hamilton is a show that advances essentially through recitative. I mean, it's wrapped it's recitative. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so um, why? Well, let's just start there, just for the edification of me and our listeners. Mark, wh- why wouldn't Hamilton be an opera?
1: Uh, well, you're going to get an argument for me. I think Hamilton definitionally is an opera. Uh, I think there are a number of pieces that have been on Broadway in recent years that definitionally are opera. I I take a a broad view of what opera is. I think it is singing theater. It is um, uh, theater where music takes the emotions, music takes the drama to a higher level, a more intense level than words alone can achieve. So, um, you know, there's no hard and fast line that it has to be sung all the way through. Uh, The magic flute of Mozart and Beethoven's Fidelio aren't sung all the way through. Uh, Opera does not have to be serious or tragic. There are plenty of comic operas. Uh, So any time you try to establish a firm definition, there's another piece that breaks through that. So I think of this large arc of singing theater. And if music is really taking the drama and the emotions and developing the characters in a way that goes beyond the words, I think of it as opera. And uh, definitionally, in in that regard, I think of Hamilton as an opera.
3: Um, yeah, what, yeah. Heidi, how, how react to that too. I mean, just uh, is is there a, a working definition of opera that either excludes or includes a project like Hamilton?
4: Yeah, I would tend to agree with Mark, um, particularly today. I mean, it used to be uh, people, you know, people would say, "No, well, if it's not, you know, if it doesn't sound like Puccini, it's not opera." And since the definition has expanded, I mean, has really exploded. Um, in the, certainly in the last ten years or so, about what opera is, um, I I don't think that. You know, as Mark said, I mean, anything in which music advances the drama, um, I think is it's fair game.
3: Um, Mark, uh, since you've got that great uh, incubator there, and you're seeing all kinds of stuff uh, come through, I don't know. We we talked in the first segment about a b- bunch of the things, like the Steve Jobs opera. And the, are there one or two projects you want to mention that, at the level of just innovation or, or or thinking outside the box, really excite you?
1: Gosh, you know, I what what really I find fascinating is the way opera today is returning to its theatrical roots. Uh, you know, In the 19th century, if you wanted to see an opera, you had to go to the theater. You didn't stay home and listen to a CD. In the 20th century, opera, I think, was dealt a blow because from the old RCA Victor records, and then radio broadcasts, and then LPs and CDs, opera became an auditory art form and lost some of its vibrancy in the theater people could stay home and listen to their favorite music it didn't have to go to the theater today the new crop of operas are theatrically based they they ask you to go to the theater and to experience them as a totality what i find so interesting is how many of the operas today are taking on important contemporary topics they are resonating with the world we live in whether that is pieces about sexual identity like uh, Laura Kaminsky's As One or Greg Spears' Fellow Travelers, or they deal with issues of the, the veteran experience, the experience of being in, in war in the military, and from Silent Night to The Long Walk to um, Soldier Song. So there are a lot of operas today, large scale and small, that are dealing with the real subjects of our world and that exist in the theater so people have to go and partake in the entire multidimensional experience of opera.
3: You know, Heidi, he mentioned uh, fellow travelers. Uh, that's, uh, that premiered, uh, or at least was featured anyway, in the Prototype Festival uh, earlier this year. This is a tale of the lavender scare, the purging of homosexuals from the federal employment workforce in the 1950s. Um, so yeah, not fresh as today's headlines, but not all that far back either, and certainly a way in which uh, a theme which might resonate with a whole lot of contemporary topics. But let maybe Heidi, you could just say a little bit about the festival part of this, that this is one of the ways that opera kind of marches forward uh, in these festivals. Give people a sense of what that means, what that entails.
4: Well, there are a couple of different festival um, situations that you have. There are the um, sort of older kinds of festivals, the Santa Fe Opera and the Opera Theater of St. Louis, which are actual, you know, they, they run for a month, they do for, you know, operas in an opera house, um, and those have been been doing really well. Then there are the newer kinds of festivals. We have um, Beth Morrison Projects and her uh, collaborators doing the Prototype Festival, which is entirely new work, um, and some of it very uh, different from what you might expect for being a, you know, for regular opera house things um, performed in small spaces, sometimes performed in rather offbeat spaces. Um, And then you get something like Opera Philadelphia, which decided to, which was a you know pretty traditional opera company that did one, you know, sort of standard repertory opera like every couple of months in the Academy of Music in Philadelphia. And they decided that they were um, that this was not going to work for them in the long term because of the a lot of the financial and audience reasons. That you know we talked about before, and so uh, over a period of five years, they really did some in-depth thinking, and they reinvented uh, themselves as a festival um, f- that's a ten-day event that starts you know starts the season off with a bang, and they do a sort of quasi-standard repertory work in a regular opera house, but they also do all sorts of new pieces. Um, they did a piece called Sky on Swings, which was about Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, with two uh, very famous older singers, Frederica von Stade and Marietta Simpson, who like starred in it as these two women who were facing Alzheimer's disease. I mean, it was it was an amazing piece. So you have that. Then you have um, you know Patrisse doing La Voix Humaine in a cabaret, and then there was another kind of cabaret based show with Stephanie Blythe, um, very famous mezzo soprano, um, doing a drag show. Um, so and then you had Anthony Roth Costanzo doing his album release basically as a piece of, um, you know, performance art in the Barnes Foundation. So this is now Opera Philadelphia. Um, that's their that's their 10 day sort of like top of the season festival. And they, they figured and they were correct in feeling that they could pull in a lot of people who would be interested in going to a lot of different kinds of things in the space of a couple of days.
3: Let's go out with, uh, with a little bit of Missy Mazzoli and Breaking the Waves based on a Lars von Trier movie. Uh, and when we come back, you'll be meeting Nadine Sierra.
0: I'm Betsy Kaplan here with Kyle Wolf, taking just a few seconds out of this podcast that you're listening to of The Colin McEnroe Show. Uh, You can't listen to it or you choose not to listen to it during the day and the evening, but you're going to be rewarded for that because we're not going to be speaking to you as long about... Asking you to, to donate to the show. But we do need that support. We can't do this without you. So please give us a call 1 800 584 2788 or go online at WNPR.org and keep this programming going. Just- it is
2: possible that while you're listening to this podcast, Betsy Kaplan is figuring out the next show. So, so <laughs> or not. Or not. Oh, please take a break for once, Betsy Kaplan. But please show Betsy your support. Show us your support. This is the way that you send us a message that you want us to keep going. They do pay attention to those pledges we for do. this show. And when When you call 1-800-584-2788 or you go to wnpr.org slash donate, you can write in the little box what you think, and they do pay attention to that stuff. So please give us the rating that is your membership by calling 1-800-584-2788, wnpr.org slash donate, and let's get back to the podcast. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kion Wolf, and our intern, Panina Beatty. The part of Bill Curry was played by Joey Buttafuoco. And now, back to Colin.
3: And that voice uh, was uh, the voice of Nadine Sierra, an American opera singer who regularly performs at leading opera houses like the Metropolitan Opera and the Paris Opera. She also performs in concert in places like Mexico and Prague. And she just released her debut album, There's a Place for Us. So you've heard her sing. You're going to hear her sing some more as we go along here. But uh, let's hear her talk because I've got her on the phone line right now. Uh, Nadine Sierra, uh, honored to have you on the show.
5: honored to be here.
3: So, um, There's a Place for Us is an interesting title, and uh, obviously that's not the title of the Bernstein song. I'm guessing you chose that set of words for kind of a double meaning?
5: Yes, absolutely. Um, A personal story that I have where a woman, I would say about two and a half years ago, or about two years ago, she kind of used a name against me as like a racial slur. Mm -hmm. I knew why she had said it, because it was around the time of the presidential elections, and maybe felt a little bit, I would say, even empowered to speak out herself in a way that she believed was fair and was right. And I kind of envisioned a future for the United States if a certain person should win, kind of scary, at least for me. My parents come from sort of elsewhere. My mother is uh, Portuguese, she's from Lisbon, and my father is Puerto Rican and Italian. So I wanted to make an album that told that story and sort of gives a promise that there is a place for all of us, no matter where we come from, no matter our financial status, our educational status, whatever it may be. And I guess, yeah, I took those words from, from Bernstein somewhere because, also West Side Story in, a, in and of itself is about that. It's about these racial uh, divides and what that does to people and, and, and in many cases can kill people. So
3: <laughs> let's talk about whether that spills over into opera. Now I'm not that knowledgeable about opera. I, I would have guessed that in some ways you know, that Leontine Price and Jesse Norman and people like that ended the question of who gets to sing opera. But then I sort of wonder, I mean, are there ways in which, within the world of opera, being any particular color, any particular race, any particular ethnicity, does it still matter in terms of casting, in terms of the roles you get? Oh, for
5: sure. For sure. I do come across, let's Mm -hmm. say, certain comments from people around the industry And I would say some sponsors who sponsor opera, and they do sometimes make comments that I don't think they're really thinking before they actually speak.
3: Right. So, And when you think about that, you think, well, if in fact opera as an industry is in any way clinging to that kind of... Let's call it kind of heavily Eurocentric way of uh, of thinking that they could be right. pr- pricing themselves w- right out of the market. Look at what everybody else who's a potential audience member of opera. What are they? Who do they think is an entertainer? Well, they think Bruno Mars is an entertainer. They think right. Beyonce is an entertainer. If you want the last two or three generations of potential uh, uh, audience goers to come to opera, you would want to have more than one Nadine Sierra, I would assume.
5: <laughs> yeah, I mean. I do, I do find it interesting that a lot of people who are Puerto Rican, especially Puerto Ricans, I would say Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Brazilians, and Portuguese people—at least the people who message me every single day on Instagram or through Facebook—they thank me for sort of having this this voice for for all people, but yes, la- Latinos and Latinas especially. Well, I mean,
3: look. There's an awful lot of people who either think that opera is not cool or opera has no relationship to me. There's no reason why uh, I would be going to see this form. But there's a way in which uh, I would assume somebody like you, somebody with a pretty strong social media presence, is also presumably trying to convey to a a whole new potential group of audience members that that opera is not exclusively about the problems uh, of people living in Verona, you know, in the 1600s. (laughs)
5: Absolutely. I do know that that stigma, let's say, in opera still exists. I talk to a lot of people through social media and just like young people in general. And they they tell me that. They tell me why well, I haven't seen an opera because I'm not, you know, 72 years old. Or I haven't seen an opera because I don't want to pay $250 for a ticket. And I get it. I understand. So, yeah, through, through things like Instagram, Facebook, I do try to convey that. Opera is for everybody, can be for everybody, maybe in certain settings, especially financially. Maybe it's not really um, convenient for all people, but at least to listen to it and to sort of get a feel for it. I think anyone could could, um, could do that uh, potentially. And I try to show not just the artistic side of me through all of my social media um, Accounts, But I also just try to show the real side of me, the human side, that, you know, I'm, I'm a young woman and I'm interested in a lot of things young people are um, today. And, you know, opera isn't the only thing that I that I kind of discuss through those platforms. So I, I do try to be um, at least relatable to those who, you know, probably wouldn't really look into opera themselves.
3: I assume that's also why you picked uh, songs by let's say somebody like Ricky Ian Gordon who's young who's alive who's yeah. uh, and who's writing in an idiom that you know maybe doesn't sound quite like Donizetti right I mean yeah, who's writing absolutely. yeah go ahead talk about that Ab-
5: Absolutely I thought it was it was actually really cool meeting up with Ricky Ian Gordon I actually went to his apartment before I recorded his two songs and kind of coached them with him, you know, wanting to get his feel for his own work and sort of his, I guess, his explanation as to why he created those works. And it was nice. I think this is, well, yeah, I think I would only be able to count on one hand how many times this has happened to speak to the composer live, to actually be able to have that mm-hmm. conversation with them in person. it it is rare, and it's really refreshing. When I was able to record his pieces, I I had all of those notes in mind, and had the living figure also in my my mind as well. And um, I I guess that is why I, I sort of incorporated work from Ricky Ian Gordon, and even Bernstein too, yeah, so that people who not necessarily listen to bel canto opera or Wagner or, you know, these kinds of things that one would assume is very operatic, could take part in it and and listen to it with, I guess, ease.
3: Right. I, I think there's a whole category of things in the arts and the humanities that people think they don't like until they hear it. And I think opera is yeah. a little bit in that category. You went to opera, you heard opera, I think, when you were about 10 years old, and you just yeah. felt like you were home. But if you don't have that exposure, if you don't ever hear it, all you have is maybe you know, some kind of Bugs Bunny idea of what opera is.
5: Oh, absolutely. And you have the stigma affiliated with it, which is, you know, it's not an art form that I can get into because I am not A, B, C, or D. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was 10 years old, I guess if my mother had introduced it to me, God. I don't I don't know. I don't think I would have been introduced to it. My father certainly wouldn't have introduced opera to me. He only got into opera because I did, you know. And actually that that is a very funny thing because my father is like many uh, Americans who who have, you know, kind of this idea of what opera is and was sort of introduced to it through what I was doing when I was ten years old and now really likes opera. I mean, of course, he likes it more when I'm performing and mm-hmm. always tries to tell me that, but he likes opera and and understands it now and asks a lot of questions, and he even now memorizes certain composers and certain arias from, from operas. Um, so, yeah, I think if people were to just give it a chance, I have this feeling that many would be quite surprised by their reactions.
3: I I also wonder when there's a thing like Mozart in the jungle where suddenly you have people who are not necessarily that imbued with classical music of any kind or orchestral music of any kind or opera. And you suddenly have it all set in these beautiful locations. And obviously, the, the most operatic sequence within Mozart was set in Venice. It couldn't have been more beautiful or atmospheric. You sort of wonder, I don't know if you got any feedback from that, from people going, oh, wow, I didn't realize opera was that cool or that beautiful.
5: There have been some occasions where I've um, gone shopping to, you know, different places. And I don't know. I don't know why. Just getting into a conversation with a cashier and they ask me what I do for a living. And I tell them that I'm an opera singer. And they, some people had asked me if I had seen The
1: Jungle. Of course. Because
5: of that, I, I thought secretly to myself, I was like, yes, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> you know, Because if people are introduced to it in a way where they can understand it, You know, if it's through television, if it's through a TV series, or even a little uh, snippet in a movie, then why not? You know, if that's their way of of understanding it, and again, even having an introduction to it, I think it's great.
3: Well, uh, Nadine Sierra, it's been a thrill to talk to you, uh, rising opera star, already risen pretty far, and uh, we do want people to check out. Uh, I just got on, I happen to be on Tidal, but get on your streaming service if you have one, or better yet, uh, go somewhere and actually buy uh, a copy uh, of this terrific new release. There's a place for us. Her uh, debut album. Uh, what we'll do here, just you know, to, just to end with a little, on a little bit more bel canto note, we'll end with Verdi's uh, Rigoletto. Uh, this is Gilda's aria from Act One, and I believe it's one of your favorites too, right?
5: It is. It's um, actually one of the operas that I debuted when I was really young. I was 23 when I debuted Gilda for the first time, and she's kind of been with me ever since. And I, I just adore this this work all right so we' we'll, really magical
3: we're gonna end uh, with that we're ending our, our lovely conversation with Nadine Sierra we're ending the show too so thanks for tuning in don't let it stop here I mean let's uh, I'm not Mozart in the jungle I'm not uh, uh, Gabriel Gail Garcia Bernal uh, but uh, maybe I get you interested uh, maybe listen a little bit more uh, thanks very much for being with us Nadine Sierra
5: thank you.